Well, here we go today on our final message from Romans 6. Romans 6, the first of the three greatest consecutive chapters in the Bible. I have called them the Amen Corner of Scripture. Now, some of you have no idea what that means, but the golfers here know what Amen Corner is. Amen Corner is, uh, I think, unarguably the three greatest consecutive holes in golf. It is Augusta National where they play the Masters Golf Tournament. This is like, I can only speak of this place with tremendous reverence because I am a golfer. This is like where you would like to play. If there's three holes I could play in the world, it would be, it would be these three holes at Augusta, 11, 12, and 13. Hole 11, par four, hilly, pines on both sides, down to a very difficult green that slopes to the left towards the pond. It is beautiful, it is majestic, it is wonderful, like Romans 6. <laughs> Augusta 12, par 3. Looks so simple, but oh so hard. Par 3, over Ray's Creek, and there you have a little, you know, a little sand trap in the front and in the back. Difficult green, but what a, what a hole, like Romans 7. And then you have Azalea 13, Augusta, par five, right to left, dog leg, pines on both sides. You have Rays Creek, you have pine needles, you have jaw-dropping Augusta National Azaleas, and it is a fantastic hole of golf like Romans 8. Do you see the connection I'm making here? Uh, I can only speak of those holes with reverence, and as we have been working our way through 6, 7, and 8 in Romans, I feel the same way. Like, these are, these are the three best. Like, there's nowhere to go that are better than Romans 6, 7, and 8. And today we conclude the first of the chapters, the holes, uh, Romans chapter 6. But we know that there are two more wonderful chapters to come, and that is not to disparage uh, 9 through 16 of Romans either. But we are in the heart of Romans, we're in the sweet spot of Romans, and as we saw in Romans 6, he begins this chapter by citing an accusation that had been made against him as he had been in uh, places, uh, synagogues and, and other places, explaining to them that salvation from God is by grace. It is not merited, it is not earned, it is entirely God's grace, that God is glorified by saving us according to his kindness rather than us earning it. And there were people that were hearing him say this, and they thought to themselves, wait a second, if when we sin, God's grace abounds and God is glorified, why not sin epically? Let's just go out and be about sinning, that God might get more glory. And Paul hears that accusation, and he is appalled that they would suggest that that is what he is teaching. And the point that we've seen in Romans 6 is, is because of grace, because of salvation, our entire relationship to sin has been changed. No longer are we seeing sin as desirable, the, the, my identity is being in sin. No, my identity is in Christ. And Romans 6 has introduced this wonderful, amazing doctrine of, the, of our union with Jesus. That what happened to him happened to us. That when he died for our sin, we died to our sin. And so if somebody hears that and says, aha, now I've got cover and reason to go out and sin as much as I want, it's actually indicating that the Darth Lord sin still rules on the throne of their hearts. Grace is not cover to sin. Grace is permission and ability not to sin. It is emancipation from sin. 
Not the presence of sin, we all sin, but the penalty of sin and the dominion of sin in the life of the Christian has been taken away. Those shackles have been broken. And now when we sin, we are actually, we're in contradiction to our essential identity, which is in Christ, not in sin anymore. So there's a quick summary of Romans 6. Today we're going to look at verses 20 through 23. Let me read the text and then we'll get into it. Here is the end of Romans 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless his word to us today. And so as Paul has been doing throughout the chapter, he lays out two dramatically different ways of living and two dramatically different finalities. The title of the message is Which Fruit, Which Finality? And these two identities that he is uh, developing here, on the one hand are slaves to sin in verse 20, and on the other side, slaves to God in verse 22. So let's just talk about both of these, okay? First of all, slaves to sin. He says this in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now what Paul is saying here is that the natural us, the natural us apart from the grace of God, the us that was born in sin, we're free to sin. Now by that it's not endorsing it, it's not saying there are no consequences to it, What he is talking about is that the sinner naturally, by his nature, feels a freedom to sin. There is no internal conflict. There's no contradiction inside. They do not know the grace of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. There's no inclination to please God. So they are free in in the sense that their whole nature is towards sin. And of course, this is not to say that, that the natural person doesn't do good things because everybody at sometimes does good things and may do so for any number of reasons. There are societal expectations that keep us doing good things. There's the fear of negative consequences that keeps people from doing bad, sinful things. You might drive by a bank and say, I wish I had all the money in that bank. And you think, maybe I should rob that bank. But why doesn't the natural person, apart from the grace of God, rob the bank? Because they don't want to go to jail for the rest of their life. And so they say, I think I'll not rob the bank. I'll choose not to sin because of the negative consequences that would come from it. And it does feel, in a sense, good to an image bearer to do things that are consistent with that image bearing. Okay? So people will be philanthropic. People will... Uh, you know, look out for the good guy. People will help old ladies across the street. And all the, the old ladies said? <laughs> they all went to first service. Uh, all I see is young ladies in front of me, and I am not pandering at all. Yes, I am. So they may make moral choices, but they are free to not do so. They are free from the internal struggle to obey God or his moral law. Now what Paul quickly notes in verse 21 is that while they are free from righteousness, they are not free from sin's consequences. 
Look again at verse 21. For what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of sin is death. And so Paul points out now two devastating consequences for a life that is lived according to sin. It's fruit and it's finality. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is nothing good. What was sin producing in my life? Nothing good. And this, of course, is part of the challenge that we have with sin, is that sin always looks better before you sin than after you sin. Are you with me? Okay. I've said it before, sin uh, spends a lot of money on makeup. It has to hide its essential nature. It has to hide the consequences, or no rational person would choose to sin. So, for example, in the Bible, that fruit in the Garden of Eden looked good before they sinned. Bathsheba looks good before you sin. 30 pieces of silver sounds good before you betray the Son of God. Sin spends a lot on makeup. But then after you sin, now come the consequences. And they're always worse than you expect them to be. One example of this, 2 Samuel 13 tells the story of King David's son Amnon, his oldest son Amnon. And uh, Amnon was totally infatuated with his half-sister Tamar. There's five women in the Bible that are described as being beautiful. Tamar is one of them. And he was totally enraptured by lust for his half-sister. And there's some creepiness in here, but this is the story. And so uh, he's just, he's so sick. He can't sleep at night. He's just so enraptured with her. And one day he violates her. And the text says, the moment after he violated her, he hated her more than he loved her. And that's what sin is. Sin always, the other side of sin is worse than what we think it will be. Or to give an example, beer commercials are always rave parties with gorgeous people drinking like fish. You'll never see a beer commercial with people puking in a toilet or dying from a car accident. Sin has to hide its consequences or we would never rationally choose it. And that's what he's pointing out here, that sin hides its fruit. Paul says, where was sin taking you in your life? We might say it this way, how was that working out for you? That addiction, that besetting sin, how was that working out for you? And the answer, over time, we come to the conclusion is, this is destroying my life. This is taking over my heart. This is not satisfying any longings, it's actually increasing them because it's insatiable, the cravings that I have. It's turning out badly. And the second fruit that he notes here is death. For the end of those things is death. The path of sin is always leading us somewhere. We try to convince young people of this, right? We are, when our, 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 our kids, or if you work with young people, and they're, they're choosing things in their life, and you say to them, do you realize, hey, this choice that you're making, it's one step on a path. This thing is going to lead you somewhere. You're in a direction in your life. And that path may seem popular, it may seem pleasurable, but it leads to other steps. Sin always does. It's a descent into what Paul calls here death. 
And death, by the way, is not just physical death, although it certainly includes that. Death is a kind of lifestyle because sin against the will of God hollows out our humanity. It dehumanizes us. Every time I sin, something is being sort of something good is being taken away from my very being. So death is a present reality. And sin leads us to it. Here's another example. You know, in our country right now, we have this huge epidemic of heroin. Okay? Huge problem. Not just young people, but adults. And so one of the ways that they've been fighting uh, the, the uh, epidemic is they have been doing advertisements. And maybe you've seen billboards like this or in social media. They're paying for these posts where they show people before their addiction and after their addiction. And you look at the before picture and you're like, you know, they've, they're, they've, they're healthy, they've, they've, they're vibrant, they've got, you know, they look good. <laughs> they look good. After heroin takes over their life, they look horrible. I mean, they look really bad. Skeletons and, you know, their face and all the things. And you look in their eyes and you see what? Desperation. They become desperate. And sin is like that. It is, it is addictive in its nature, and it creates longings for more and more, and it takes us down a path. And that's what Paul says here. The end of sin is death. I remember when I was a teenager, I played basketball in, on, the, on the school team, and uh, we were on this away trip, and so we had to, you know, bunk somewhere, and so they piled a bunch of those guys in different rooms, and so... Uh, Lights went out, we were supposed to go to sleep, we get talking about girls. Shocker. And uh, so we're talking about girls. And I remember one of my teammates, this was a Christian high school, by the way, I remember one of my teammates there in the darkness, I remember him, he was talking about his girlfriend, and he said that he was hoping that very soon he would get to have sex with her. And he said, he quoted the Bible, he quoted Proverbs, and he said, after all, the Bible does say, stolen water is sweet. I wish I had the maturity to finish the sentence or the the verse for him. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. There is always this dimension to sin, friends. It's a small step towards Hell. Hell's the final destination of sin. And this is the folly of sin. It's the heartache of sin. It's the pain of sin. It always comes back to haunt us. And you think about all of the heartache and all of the despair and, and all of the insatiable cravings in this world as all of these are things and steps on a path leading downward to eternal death. In fact, the Greek word here for death is thanatos. Now, I wonder if we have any Avenger fans here. All of a sudden, the Comic-Con group's like, oh, this sermon just got interesting. Did he just say Avengers? Yes, I did. I said Avengers. Any Avengers fans here? Who, who can tell me who is the ultimate baddie in the Avenger universe? What's his name? Thanos, that's right. That sounded like an old lady's voice. I don't know. (laughs) You were supposed to say something earlier in the message. No, I'm joking with that. I'm joking. Thanos. What do they say 
about Thanos. Everywhere Thanos goes, what happens? What's there? Death. Death and destruction. When they wrote that comic, I looked it up, it was like 1973, they came out with that. Why did they name him Thanos? They borrowed it from the Greek of the culture of the time of the Bible. That's what it means, death. That's the very word that we have here. Wherever sin goes, death goes with it. And so we need to ask the question today, which path are we on? Friend, which path are you on today? There are two paths. Which of these choices, or what are these choices leading me? What are going to be the consequences of the direction that I'm living? And to remember that sin is a destroyer. Sin is anarchy in my life. Sin hollows me out. It takes something from me every single time. And here in our church, we see it where an entire family will be destroyed because one member of the family decides to bow the knee to Thanos. And death enters into that family but then you get to verse 22, okay? That's the slaves to, to sin. But look at verse 22. Here is, the, uh, here is the ray of light. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Okay? Slaves to sin, slaves to God. There's an internal logic here. Slavery has a fruit and a uh, slavery to sin has a fruit and a finality. Slavery to God has a fruit and finality. And just to make it totally clear what he's saying here, what is sin's fruit and finality? It is shame and it is death. What is God's? It is sanctification and eternal life, which sounds pretty wonderful. And indeed it should be. If you understand what sanctification is, and we're going to spend a lot more time on this in Romans 7 and 8, but just to give you a preview, a very quick definition, what does this big word right here mean? It means becoming what we are, to become what we are. Justification is God declaring us righteous. Are we righteous? No, we're not righteous. We're sinners. That's the wonder of justification and the glory that Jesus died for our sins and that those, that righteousness is imputed to us by faith. We are declared righteous. God says, I'll treat you as righteous forever. But we're not righteous in practice. And that is what sanctification is. It is God making us in the practice of our life, in the lifestyle of our thoughts, our actions, our words, our deeds. He is conforming us to the likeness of his son. This is Romans 8.29. Can't wait to preach this verse. It's coming, but just to tell you what it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is making all of us into little Jesus juniors. He is conforming all that we are to what he is like. And so to understand this relationship, justification is that we are saved by Jesus Sanctification is that we become like Jesus. Glorification is that we get to be with Jesus. And that is salvation in a nutshell. And becoming like Jesus is really wonderful, by the way. If Jesus is wonderful to you. You know, for, for all, uh, today's game, Bears-Lions. Is it at Soldier Field? I don't know. Somebody knows? Okay. So it's at Soldier Field. Right now, there are grown men getting ready to go to the game. These are grown men, mature men. 
and they are putting on clothes assigned to somebody else. They're putting on a jersey with some guy's name on the back. And they are going to wear that in public. This is not their pajamas. They're going to wear somebody else's, another man's clothing in public. Who would do such a thing? Why would you do that unless you thought that person was pretty wonderful? And I want to identify with that particular player. And Soldier Field will be filled with tens of thousands of people wearing clothing assigned to somebody else. And for every sports fan that wears a jersey like that, or every woman who decorates her house just like Joanna Gaines, (laughs) or every teenager who right now is desperate to have the same hairdo and clothing look as whoever the it person is right now, we come to find out that it is human nature that we want to be like people that we think are wonderful. And as a Christian, who's more wonderful than Jesus? And so it's really awesome news to realize that God is promising and committing to making us Jesus juniors, to conforming us to the likeness of his son, that this is the work of God in my life. More on that to come in future chapters, this Christological makeover that we all are in the process of getting. And the fruit of this, what he calls slavery to God, is sanctification and the finality of that is eternal life okay sin is death grace of God is life and Paul refers it I read somebody that said every time Paul talks about eternal life he's referring to a future eternal life but Jesus talks about eternal life as being a present reality in the person that has been born again Maybe more like what Paul calls newness of life. The point is this, is that the very life of the future has now been invaded through the resurrection of Jesus into this world. And that when somebody trusts in in Christ as their Savior, that eternal life is birthed within them. They are now born again. And we live now according to the life that will be the fullness of life in the future. And so here's the big point. He's drawing a contrast. I hope you see it. Slavery to sin, what does it produce? It produces shame and it produces death. Slavery to God by his grace and faith in Jesus Christ, it produces a fruit, which is sanctification, and it produces a finality, which is eternal life forever with God in glory. And the summary of all that he is saying here is the famous verse 23. For the wages of sin is is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've been a Christian long, you probably know that verse. It's one of the first ones we teach our children here in our children's ministry. What a wonderful verse. And what it's saying is this, is that sin, sin pays wages. Okay, sin pays wages. The word there for wages just means like paycheck, okay, or payday. Sin has a payday. Sin gives us what we've earned. That's what a paycheck is. If you get a paycheck, you earned that paycheck. You work so many hours, and the fruit of that is they give you what you deserve. When it comes to sin, the holiness of God requires payment. And sin makes a payment. And ever since Genesis 3, that payment has been death, physical death, And apart from the grace of God, eternal death. 
So for all of sin's temporary pleasures, if I could go back to my friend and say, yeah, stolen waters are sweet, they bite in the end. They bite in the end. Hell is eternal regret. There's no one in hell right now saying, oh, I'm glad I lived that way. Hey, you know, hey, let's celebrate the fact that we got what we could when we could. Isn't it great that we got to live that way for a while? Nobody in hell has that perspective. They're all regretful for the way that they lived. Since payday is horrendous, God's wrath is forever. And all of it, like a paycheck, is earned. And all sinners are paid in full. But salvation, in salvation, God doesn't give us what we deserve. God gives us a gift. Sin gives paychecks. God gives gifts. It is the generosity of God. This is gift giving. It is not earned. It is free. And so one reason that God is a better master is that all sin can do is pay wages, but God gives gifts. Who would you rather have in your life? Somebody that gives you exactly what you deserve or somebody who is generous and gives you what you don't deserve? Something far better than what you deserve. And I got thinking about this, and I, I find such a parallel in marriage. In marriage and, the, and the, the relationship between a husband and wife because it is so easy in marriage to fall into a transactional relationship with your spouse. What do I mean by that? Well, you do this for me, and then I'll do this for you. Or to think this, for me to get what I want in this relationship, I'm going to have to do this for him or her, and then he'll have to do this, uh, what I want, for me. Okay? And this is a huge problem in a marriage. And it's not just those kinds of transactions, it's these kinds of transactions. It's negatively transactional. You did this to me, therefore I am justified to do this to you. Oh, you hurt me? Well, I'm going to hurt you back. I'm going to give you what you deserve. Wages and payback. And marriage suffocates when it gets transactional like that because the whole paradigm for marriage is not Jesus' transactional relationship with the church. It is Jesus' love relationship with the church where he gives to the church what it doesn't deserve far better than the church ever deserves. And so in marriage, this love, it's a one-way giving till death do us part. It is a love relationship. And love doesn't keep score. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of rights either. Okay, there's no, there's no scorekeeping in love. It's not transactional. It's one way. But if you're married to a scorekeeper, or if you're the scorekeeper, or maybe both of you are keeping score, your marriage is going to descend into chaos because you are married to a sinner, and you are a sinner as well, and sinners always run deficits in all relationships because we never do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. And there's always things that you can remember that were done. Oh, I remember when you said this and you did that and all the rest, keeping score. I would encourage you not to nudge your spouse right now because they will remember that and keep score that you did that in church. <laughs> the only thing that balances the books in marriage are grace and love. 
So would you rather be paid marital wages or marital gifts? And by that, I don't mean presents, although for me, that's part of my love language. Jennifer in the front row. Uh, I mean the gift of forgiveness. I mean the gift of kindness, the gift of grace, the gift of love covering over an offense, the kind of gift, the kind of grace that allows a couple to start a new day, to push the restart button, and say, let's just start fresh today. One is a transactional relationship. The other is a gospel relationship. And it's just one way that the gospel resources Christian marriages is it provides a paradigm and it provides grace and love to do that. Satan has no mercy. Sin has no grace. Sin has no kindness. All it can do is pay back. Listen to one commentator. Eternal life is a grace gift. Even if Christian persons managed to live an entirely sanctified life, this would not oblige God to reward them with eternal life, for they will have done uh, no more than what was required of them. Thus, Paul does not see eternal life as some sort of quid pro quo for holy living in this lifetime. Salvation is indeed a matter of grace received through faith from start to finish. And you see that in the end of that little verse. All of this is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What makes all of this possible for me to get grace and not payback? It is that I am in union with Christ. That's code. In Christ Jesus our Lord, I am in union with him. What happened to him happens to me. When he died on the cross, I was there with him with my sin. When he was dead in the grave, I was there with him. When he was stepped out of that grave in resurrection, I was with him. In the eyes of God, spiritually, I'm connected to those things. Which means that now the grace of God can come my way. Through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll always remember Romans 6. For my own life, Romans 6 was my discovery of the great doctrine of union with Christ. Praise God for it. All right, so let's draw all this together with some application, okay? Let's have some application here. And my first application has to do with dealing with temptation. Remember what Paul says here. He says, what fruits were you getting with that lifestyle of sin? Where was that taking you? How's that going for you? And here's the application. When we are seized by temptation, we must begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. One of the ways to battle temptation when when I'm facing something is for me to ask the question, where is this going to take me? If I do this, what are going to be the consequences of it? How am I going to feel about it? How is this going to impact other people in my life? How is this going to impact my relationship with God? And this requires a certain level of of mature thinking, I will admit. But what a wonderful lesson it is. I know in my own own story, as one example, uh, in my own battle with lust, for example, I I have found this to be so helpful because how many times do you have to let your eyes go somewhere or your mind to linger on something or to fantasize about something and to experience on the other side of that thing, shame and regret and like, you know, yucky, before you go, if I do this, I'm going to feel horrible on the other side of it. And I'm not the smartest person in the, in the room. I'm not the dumbest person either. I can kind of go, you know what, that's going to feel bad. 
I don't think I'm going to, to do it. So I bring to my mind, as I'm tempted, what it's going to feel like on the other side of giving in to the temptation. Similarly, there are things that I don't naturally want to do, that I know God wants me to do, that I can think about this way as well. This is like the gym principle. Nobody going to the gym is happy about going to the gym, right? It's always hard to get running. It's always hard to get working out. Nobody's connecting on this. You don't work. This, this service doesn't work out. This is the donut service. No, but how do you feel when you're done working out? You're always glad that you did, right? And when it comes to the things of God that we know that God wants us to do, and there's this aversion in our, my heart to actually go about and doing it, I can bring this to mind and think, how do I feel after I have obeyed God in this particular area? How do I feel after I have given to support the kingdom of God? How do I feel after I've used the spiritual gift to help somebody out? I feel great about it. And to allow that what's going to be on the end to motivate me to both not do what I shouldn't do and to do the things that I should. Very helpful. Secondly, our pursuit of slavery to righteousness should outpace sinners. Uh, sl- sinner- I said that badly. <laughs> we try that again. Good. Help me out. i got to read it. Our pursuit of slavery to righteousness should outpace sinners' slavery to sin. Here's what I mean by it. If you think about all of the enthusiasm that sinners have for the idols of their heart and the idols of this world and all the things that they do in their pursuit of it, I say our enthusiasm for the things of God should outpace the sinners. Why? Because the fruit of what we're doing is better and the finality is as well. So think of what sinners do for their idols. For, for, for money, sinners will work their bodies to death. 80 hours a week, no problem. I'm in. Why? Because, oh, I, I want that money. For fame, an athlete will pour their entire life with self-discipline into some particular recreation. I mean, if you do watch the football game this afternoon, those guys that you see on the field, they've been lifting weights since they were six. And perhaps using other things to expand their muscles, which I clearly have abstained from. (laughs) But why will those athletes with all of that discipline do what they do for fame and fortune? For career advancement, people will sacrifice their family and their children, and, and on and on we could go. Here's the point. Sinners are very enthusiastic about their sin, and they go after it with all that they have. And I say that our enthusiasm for God and the things of God and being made into the likeness of Christ and advancing the kingdom of God and and seeing people's lives transformed and baptized like we had here today, our enthusiasm for those things should be greater than sinners' enthusiasm for things because our, our, our finality is better. The fruit is far better. To say it this way, let's not let sinners out hustle us. Okay? Let's not let sinners out-hustle us. And let's live our lives in a way that, that shows that we actually are like, we're, we're on this path and we're more excited about this path than you could ever be about the path to hell. And the third is this. Which fruit, which finality? 
Surely this is the key point of Romans 6.23. This is why it's included in evangelistic literature and, and such. Is it just clearly spells out two ways to live, two paths to live, two destinies to experience. And I just got to ask you today, which are you on? Which are you on? The one will seem more immediately gratifying. This path will be the one that seems more pleasurable on the front end, but it leads to hell. The other seems less attainable, but it leads to heaven. And it is only attained by repentance in this life and a full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, dying for our sins, resurrected, conquering death, and now declaring to any who will trust and believe in him that now there is new life. There is, there is new life. There is a new path. There's a better fruit. There's a far better finality than the best sin you could come up with and say is somehow wonderful. No, this path is far more wonderful. And it is attained by Jesus Christ being enthroned in our hearts as Lord and Savior. And that is not a popular truth in our society, but I assure you, it is a very popular truth in heaven, which is where I want all of us to go and for all of us to be on that path today. So which fruit are you living? Toward which finality are you walking?